Uh, We are studying the book of John, so if you could open your Bibles up to John chapter 18, we are going to uh, begin reading there. You may have noticed that we uh, normally sing three songs, and then we go to the sermon, and we sing one song. This week, we thought we'd change it up a little bit, and we were going to go two songs in the sermon, and then two more songs. And the idea is that gives us a little bit more time to respond to God's Word in singing. So hopefully, that the, uh, moving that other song to the back will help you respond. So uh, think about that, and let me know. Give us feedback. So we're going to study John 18 tonight. This, this series we titled, The Glorious Truth. We're looking at the glorious truth that God has revealed through Jesus's, uh, specifically his death and resurrection here at the end of John. Last week, we looked at Jesus's arrest and we learned that Jesus is the great I am and the great lamb. And he was handed over for us when he was arrested. Uh, And this week, we're going to continue the story. And after Jesus was arrested, they took him to his Jewish trial with the high priest Annas. And what John is going to do is he's going to uh, shift back and forth from Jesus' trial with the high priest to Peter, who is outside of the trial. And I think you're going to see this fascinating juxtaposition between what's going on with Annas and Peter and what's happening with Jesus. Um, If you're a young listener, there's three things I want you to listen for, okay? A president, a softball game, and a bunny. A president, a softball game, and a bunny. Okay? All right, let's hear from God's word. This is John 18, verses 13 through 27. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father in law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of his man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. John tells us that Jesus did many incredible miracles, but he recorded these so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing in him, we may have life. So let's listen to his words. On the night of June 16th, 1962, 
What happened? Trivia buffs. Someone broke in to the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Complex in Washington, D.C. And the ensuing trial was called the Watergate Scandal or the Watergate Trial. And that trial lasted over two years and ended with the resignation of President Nixon. And though Nixon never took the stand, his character and his policies and his politics and his power did as scores of his staff and and trusted advisors and underlings testified in that trial. And that trial became a national spectacle. People were watching it all the time. Businessmen would take televisions to their offices back before they had smartphones and you could just stream everything. They would take televisions to their offices so they could watch the trial and bars would turn off the sports and turn on the trial so they could watch it. Every night, PBS would rerun the trial so that people, so everybody could see it. It was so successful for PBS, they had over 82,000 letters sent in about the trial, and they raised $1.25 million in contributions. It was the most successful show they had aired up until that point. The Irving Committee was the committee who researched the case, spent over $1.5 million on the case, and received over 1 million letters while the case was being tried. Trials like Watergate and others capture our imaginations and they change the shape of history. No trial has changed the shape of history like the trial of Jesus Christ. So this trial deserves more attention than any other trial in the history of the world, even Watergate. And over the next few weeks, we're going to study Jesus' trial. He's going to have, we're going to look at his Jewish trial tonight, and then we'll look at his Roman trial next week. And I want us to see that even though Jesus is the one on trial, what's actually on trial is two things, religion and irreligion. And what I hope you see is that Christianity is different than both of those things. Christianity is actually a third way to live because what Jesus reveals here is the glorious truth, right? That religion will not save you and irreligion will not save you, but Jesus Christ will. That the gospel is good news that the church is a family of people who are sinners saved by grace. The gospel is the good news that the church is a family of sinners who are saved by God's grace. So we're going to look at that this evening. We're going to see three things. We're going to see the failure of Annas, the failure of Peter, and the faithfulness of Jesus. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is the failure of Annas. Now, you've got to remember that Annas was the official priest of the Jewish people. Okay? A priest responsible for maintaining the temple. That was where they came to worship Jesus. And the, the priests were a part of uh, one tribe uh, in, in, of the tribe of Israel, the tribe of Levi. They were the Levites, and they were responsible for performing the sacrificial system. And that system was set up so that the people could worship God and they could be with him. All right? That's how it was all set up underneath the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant. So being a priest was a super important job in Israel. And Annas was the high priest, okay? 
That means he was the highest of all the priests. And the high priest had a special job, and that is uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would perform special sacrifices to pay, not to pay, to symbolize the payment of sin for all of God's people. He had to go through an elaborate process that would cleanse him and symbolize his forgiveness. And then he would go into the holy of holies, the the innermost part of the temple, and he would sacrifice and come into God's presence uh, to symbolize us coming and being near to God, right? So he was arguably the most important man in Israel at this time. And when they brought Jesus to him, he had a very important job. His job was to analyze Jesus to see if he was the Messiah. The high priest would always have to analyze the sacrifices to make sure that they were without blemish. The sacrifice had to be perfect. So when Jesus comes in, he's coming in, and so Annas can inspect him to see if he truly is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lamb, right? And, and the Jews, what's interesting about it is the Jews had an incredible incredibly elaborate process for trials that they had to follow very strict guidelines to make sure you had a fair trial. There had to be a notice of charges. There had to be multiple witnesses. The trial had to take place during the day. It couldn't take place at night. If a guilty conviction was given, then they actually could not render a verdict that evening. They had to go sleep on it. They had to all go home, think about it overnight, and then the next day come back and deliberate again. And they did absolutely none of that in Jesus' trial. None of it. They broke every single rule in the Jewish code of law for trials possible. He didn't do any of it. And in the end, he failed. He failed in his job as a high priest. He failed in his job as a judge. When Jesus comes in, Annas is face to face with God in the flesh, and Annas doesn't see it. To make that even more incredible, the entire Jewish religion in the Old Testament was all set up to point to Jesus. Every sacrifice, every celebration, every miracle, the deliverance from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the uh, conquest of the promised land, the, the development of the, the kingly system and the tabernacle and the temple, everything was supposed to point to Jesus. And here Jesus is, the fulfillment of all those things, and Annas misses it. He didn't see it. They missed Jesus. And he represents all of Israel missing Jesus. They failed to see that he was the Savior. What does that mean for us? I think it's a warning to us. It means that we can be religious. We can have good theology. We can have good worship practices. We can come from a good, moral family. And yet, we can miss Jesus and be as far from God as someone who never steps foot in a church. You can be religious and miss Jesus and not be Christian. Uh, I once heard a pastor say that one of his favorite questions to ask new members when they come to his church and they want to join is, are you a Christian? 
And he says he can tell a lot by their response. He says, when he asks that simple question, are you a Christian? Sometimes what he'll get is, yeah. You know, kind of like, are you, why are you asking me if I'm a Christian? Of course I'm a Christian. And I'll say, well, okay, why are you a Christian? And I'll say, well, I, I grew up in a Christian family, and I grew up going to church all my life. And, I, you know, I was baptized in the church, and I made a profession of faith, and I... Um, you know, and I went to BVS, and then I really tried to live a good life and do all of the, do all the right things and follow the Bible. And, and what, what are they doing? They're laying out their resume for why they're a Christian. And won't say anything about Jesus. And that, that offensiveness that anyone would even ask if they're a Christian sort of has underneath it this assumption that, of course, I've done all these religious things, so of course that makes me a Christian. You can do all those things and miss Jesus. Everything we do in this service is what we call a means of grace. The prayers, the songs, the scripture reading, the sacraments, they're all means of grace. They're all meant to point to Jesus. But if they don't point you to Jesus, then you miss the point of all of it. And all you end up doing is trying to build your own righteousness and you end up actually farther away from Jesus than you were when you came. So what's the, the failure of Annas shows us just the failure of, of trying to save ourselves through, through our own religion, through, this, through religious traditions, right? And so, you know, what some of us, then what we do is, with that is we swing to the opposite direction. We go, okay, I'm going to throw out all tradition. I'm going to throw out all ritual. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to be sold out for God. It's all about me and my passion and my faith. Be careful because that's exactly what Peter did as well. So we look at the failure of Peter. Let me remind you of who Peter is. Peter is one of the original disciples that lived with Jesus for three years, spent all of his time with Jesus. He saw Jesus feed the 5,000. He saw the glory of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He correctly guessed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the leader among the disciples, and he was Jesus's beloved friend. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? He said, you're not taking my buddy. He pulled out his sword and cut off somebody's ear. Peter was sold out for Jesus. He was so sold out that when Jesus was arrested and everybody else fled, Peter said, not me, I'm going to follow him. Followed him all the way to his trial. Found a way to sneak into the trial. John may have been there. You know, this disciple that's not named here that knew the people is probably John, but we don't know. But we do know that Peter was there. Peter was committed to Jesus. And what happened when he got into the courtyard? A servant girl, one of the lowest people on the social ladder, comes up and says, hey, aren't, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not with him. Now, maybe Peter was being shrewd. Maybe Peter was thinking, hey, I'm going to tell a little lie here, and this little lie will get me in, and then I can get in and I can see the trial, and I can get close to Jesus. But we all know something about lies, don't we? One lie turns into another lie and turns into another lie. And that's what happens to Peter. He comes in and he thinks, oh, I'm just going to go by the fire and I'm going to, you know, the trial's probably going on over there. And Jesus is with, not Jesus, Peter is with religious people. These are religious people that arrested Jesus and put him on trial. And he's over there warming himself by the fire. And he's probably there, ah, I'm just going to get warm. 
I'm going to be with these people. And then they ask him again, hey, aren't you with him? Aren't you one of his guys? What does Peter say? No, I'm, I'm not with him. What was he scared of? Was he scared of being persecuted? Was he scared of being arrested? Maybe he thought, man, if I say yes, they're going to put me on trial like Jesus, or they're just going to kill me right away. So he says, I'm not with him. And then somebody sees him and says, hey, I, I saw you. I know you. You cut off my cousin's ear in the garden, didn't you? And Peter says, no, not me. And then the rooster crows. The most sold out man for Jesus that ever lived, arguably, at least up until this time, the closest to Jesus, the most zealous for Jesus, denied him three times. You think you would have done any better? I wouldn't have. <laughs> Peter failed. He shows the failure of the new covenant people and the disciples to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah and to follow him faithfully. All of his passion, all of his knowledge, all of his faith were no match for a servant girl and a few questions. Why? Maybe he was afraid of losing approval. Maybe he was afraid of being arrested. Maybe he just wanted to be comfortable. I don't know. But rather standing with Jesus, he stood with those who opposed Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we deny Jesus like Peter did? Do we choose acceptance and approval over rejection? Do we choose to unite ourselves with religious people because they look good rather than aligning with the poor and the marginalized and the broken and the persecuted like Jesus? Do we choose to try to justify ourselves, to save ourselves out there the way the world does rather than trying to save ourselves through Jesus? Guilty. <laughs> and I was reminded of that this week. Uh, when Sharon and I first got married, we went to, uh, I was a baseball coach at the time. She came to one of my baseball games. It was a summer league game. There was a bang-bang play at the plate. Uh, the umpire called my guy out. I ran out of the dugout, and I started arguing with him, and I started yelling at him, and I just made him look like an idiot. And I proved that I was right. I proved it so good, he apologized to me at the plate. He said, I'm sorry, it was just a hard play. And I said, you get paid to make hard calls. I came home that night. Sherry said, you know, you're pretty hard on that umpire. I said, yeah, he deserved it. She said, you know, umpires are people too. So you're right. So I called him and I apologized. And I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. All right. This week, Emory had a softball game. Somebody hits a pop-up. There's, there's a coach pitcher and then a, a player pitcher. They hit the pop-up. It's right in front of the mound. The pitcher goes to get the ball, but she can't get the ball because the coach is in the way. And so she like hesitates and the ball hits the ground and the girl's safe at first base. And I, like Peter, can't keep my mouth shut. And I start yelling, interference, interference, obstruction. He's got to get out of the way. And the umpire takes off his mask, looks up in the dugout and says, are you going to let me call the game? I said, yeah, I'm sorry. 
and I heard the rooster crow. <laughs> Can't do it on my own. Will, willpower, knowledge, desire, it will not keep me from trying to save myself through sports. And it won't keep you from trying to save yourself through your performance at work or at home or on the ball field or in the classroom or anywhere else. A failure of Peter is, is a failure that we all have to save ourselves. And the failure of Annas and the failure of Peter shows us that our religious teaching can't save us Our religious passion can't save us. There is nothing that can save us aside from the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot build our own righteousness. We have to have the faithfulness of Jesus. And John masterfully shows us that, right? As you see the failure of Annas and you see the failure of Peter, you see the faithfulness of Jesus. While Annas was busy failing as a high priest, Jesus was busy being the faithful high priest. All of the other land, all the other priests came into the temple with a spotless ram or a lamb or something to sacrifice. Jesus brought himself. He was the priest and he was the sacrifice. And when the high priest would go into the temple, he always wore 12 stones on his garments. And those 12 stones represented the people of Israel and how he, the high priest was taking them into the presence of God. And when Jesus was praying in the upper room that we studied before, he was praying to God and he had us in his heart. He was taking us before the Lord, praying for us. And as he's going through this trial, he is taking us before the Lord. He is taking our sin on him to pay for our sins. He, was, he, he came to offer himself for us. He was tempted in every way like us. He was tempted to, to trust his own righteousness. He was tempted to tell little lies. He was tempted to exchange comfort for persecution. He was tempted to deny God for the approval of man. Yet he never did it. He was without sin. And while Peter was busy lying about knowing Jesus, what was Jesus doing? He was telling the truth. He was being honest. He was given an honest testimony. He said, I've been teaching in the synagogue the entire time that I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the Savior that has come to save you. And they arrested him and convicted him and put him on a cross and killed him. He could have lied to save himself, but he didn't. He used his passion, his zeal, his knowledge, everything he had to save us. He used them all to save failures like us and bring us into God's family. And when you see that grace, it changes you. Jesus didn't just come to make bad people good. He didn't just come to make ignorant people intelligent. He didn't just come to make uh, losers winners. He didn't just come to make rich people poor. He didn't just come to make sick people healthy. Jesus came to raise people from the dead spiritually and to bring them into his family. I heard a story once about an elder who was uh, an outstanding elder and he was working with an alcoholic and he was trying to get this alcoholic 
uh, to go to Alcoholics Anonymous so we can, he could get into recovery. And he wouldn't do it. And finally, the elder said, I will go with you. I'll go to Alcoholics Anonymous with you. Keep in mind, this elder had never taken a drop of alcohol before in his life. So the guy says yes, and they go to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they're sitting in the circle, and they're going around the circle. And when you go to Alcoholics Anonymous, everybody introduces themselves and says, hi, my name is so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. And as they go around the circle, it gets to the elder. And what is the elder going to say? Never taking a drop of alcohol in his life. He looks himself and says, hi, my name is so-and-so, I'm a sinner saved by grace. That's us. As everybody in this church, that is everybody in the family of God, we are sinners saved by God's amazing grace. It's not our tradition. It's not our family. It's not our passion. It's not anything else. John tells us that we are born of God, that all who believe in him are born of God. So how do we keep from missing it each week like Annas? Well, the call to worship tells us, this is what David tells us, that God doesn't delight in sacrifices or we would give it. He's not pleased with burnt offerings. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God doesn't despise those. So every week we come in here and we admit that we're sinners saved by grace. We bring a broken heart and a contrite spirit. What do we do when we deny Jesus like Peter? We remember what Jesus told Peter. He told Peter, Satan has asked that he sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Jesus is praying for us. He was praying for us in John 17. He is praying for us on the cross. He's praying for us in heaven right now. He's praying for you. He's praying that your faith won't fail. And even when Peter hung his head and cried and ran away, Jesus was praying for him. And he was looking for him. And Peter came back. And God, you can run, you can run, you can run from God. You can try to hide from him, but he's going to run after you. Just like the story of the runaway bunny. Okay, y'all, y'all remember the story of the runaway bunny? Right? And once with a little bunny who said, told his mom, I'm going to run away. His mom said, okay, I'm going to run after you. You're my little bunny. And so the bunny said, the little baby bunny said, um, if you run after me, I'm going to come a fish in a trout stream, and I'm going to swim far, far away from you. And the mom said, okay, if you become a fish, I'll become a fisherman, and I'll catch you. And the bunny said, well, if you become a fisherman, then I'm going to become a rock on a mountain high above you. And the, the, the mom said, well, if you become a rock, I'll become a rock climber. And I'll climb where you are, and I'll come get you. And the bunny said, well, if you become a rock climber, I'm going to become a flower. I'm going to hide in a garden. And the mom said, well, if you do that, then I'm just going to become a gardener. I'm going to come find you. And the bunny said, well, if you become a gardener, I'm going to become like a bird. I'm going to fly far, far away. You'll never find me. And the mom said, well, if you do that, then I'm going to become like a tree. And when you come home, you're going to land in me. And finally, the bunny said, well, then I'll become a sailboat and I'll sail away from you. And the mom said, well, then I'll become the wind, and I'm going to blow you where I want you to go. And the little bunny said, well, shucks. I might as well just stay here and be your little bunny. So we did. And the mom said, I'm going to give you a carrot. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, 
Jesus is going to come find you. He's going to bring you home. Let's pray together.